Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Scott Sturt, founder and CEO of Venture for Canada and your host. The focus of this podcast is to hear from change makers and young Canadian entrepreneurs to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneurial mindset and skills. In season two, we'll be chatting with young Canadians about their unconventional career trajectories and what it's like to be young entrepreneurial leaders. I'm excited to dive into these conversations about how to foster your entrepreneurial mindset and drive. We are really excited to have Susie Pan on a new wave of entrepreneurship today. Susie Pan's life mission is to help people, products, and businesses unleash their potential. She is an entrepreneur, product leader, and builder. She has worked extensively with early stage startups and large corporates that want to innovate in a variety of roles, including marketing, product, and business strategy across different industries. After having tried a few of her own startup ideas, she joined as employee number five in an early stage HR startup where she led marketing, user acquisition, and engagement initiatives. Being known for her ability to organize chaos, she then made a jump and joined the Royal Bank of Canada as the first product lead of their AI Research Institute where she led the team in solving meaningful problems for the bank using cutting-edge AI. Having been to 40-plus countries and completed her formal schooling in nine different places, she is always on the move to explore the world. Her current mission is to help people, companies, and products unleash their full potential while exploring the world and building her tribe. She is also a 2015 Venture for Canada Fellow. Welcome to the show, Susie. Thank you, Scott. Glad to be here. So you are in New Zealand right now, which is definitely the focus of the world, given the the, the pandemic, uh, one of the few places uh, that has been relatively untouched. So what is it like in New Zealand right now uh, during uh, COVID? Uh, There is no COVID. So uh, we have basically absolute freedom. Um, I haven't worn a mask over six months. I do think that we're like, we're literally on an island. (laughs) We're literally like uh, separated from the rest of the universe. And I do because like, I'm like still talking to a lot of people in North America do feel like I'm in another world because like our life is just so different. Um, It's funny because I consider it as more of a normal life. It's what people have up up until 2020. And, uh, but also recognizing how absolutely privileged and lucky I am to be in New Zealand right now. Yeah, very, you picked the literally perfect time <laughs> to, to, to be in New Zealand. Oh, yeah. I tell people we knew the pandemic was coming and that's why we're in New Zealand. It is literally the perfect time. We were talking before the show, but I visited New Zealand a month before the pandemic. And I remember when I was there thinking, oh, this would be a great place uh, to like hide out if there's ever a global uh, catastrophe. And lo and behold, uh, th- there was, and you picked definitely a great place. And New Zealand is a beautiful country. Uh, on that the topic is what, if somebody was visiting New Zealand, what would be some of the top places you, you recommend that they check out? Oh, this entire country. That's way too many to talk about. I, I, I just, everything I love about this country. I love the area around Mount Cook and uh, Lake Tikapo, which is the tallest, uh, Lake Mount Cook's the tallest mountain in uh, New Zealand. And there are some absolutely gorgeous, unreal hikes. Um, but I, I, I also think New Zealand's actually, there's not that many cities. So if you really want food or ethnic diversity, there's really only three places in the entire country you can go to. And that's Auckland, Wellington, Christchurch. And out of that, I love Christchurch. I was saying earlier, Christchurch is not necessarily only my favorite city in New Zealand, probably one of my favorite city in the world. Part of it is the history that it has because of the earthquake 10 years ago and the mock shooting, which is about two years ago now. 
you have a certain amount of tenacity in the city and you have this really big rebuild energy. Things are like the, the center square is probably 90% destroyed during the earthquake CBDs. Things are still being torn down. You see new buildings and you're like, oh, this was here last week and it's like no longer here. And um, the city's so dynamically changing that like I love like being able to discover things. It's also gorgeous as a beautifully situated right next to the beach and right next to the hills and accessible everywhere. So definitely recommend Christchurch. A, a beautiful place. I've briefly visited and uh, also it, one of the things that's really cool about Christchurch too is people can take these little like kind of gondolas through the, uh, the this kind of the uh, Avon yeah. or what's the stream? Or the it's, it's Avon named- River. The Avon River. Avon River. Yeah. Uh, and a beautiful big park in the middle of the city. And yeah. it's it's a it's a fantastic place. Uh, and I find, I think, 400,000 people. So not yeah. small, but not huge. Uh, yeah, so... it's the second largest city in New Zealand. New Zealand doesn't have cities. It, this is the second largest city. So um, other than Auckland, which is like 30% of the New Zealand population, this is the third largest city. It's one of the only places you'll get decent Asian food and like have ethnic like variety um, and have enough of the city. So I think it's actually the, the perfect size. Agreed. Rural New Zealand definitely does not have a huge diversity of food. Lots of meat pies. If you like meat pie, go to New Zealand. Yeah. Also, they tell it's like fish and chips and Asian food. Like it'll it'll be a Chinese takeaway, fish and chips. And like fish and chips is not Chinese food. (laughs) And the rest of New Zealand, that's what they think of like Chinese food is like fish and chips takeaway. So... Yeah, it is. It's an interesting. On the topic, uh, one of the things I've always been fascinated about is the the kind of parallels between Canada and New Zealand. When I was in university, I actually uh, made minored in Australian New Zealand studies, uh, oh. kind of randomly, and have had a long term like personal interest in in New Zealand. So, given you have spent a lot of time in Canada and now you've spent a fair amount of time yeah. in New Zealand, what do you think are some of the parallels that uh, and and also the differences that exist between the two countries? I think it's one of the places we could come to as Canadians that had the least amount of cultural shock uh, because they speak the same language, people look the same. Um, it's very, very similar. But I think the biggest similarity is like the pe- people see New Zealand uh, to Australia as the way Canadians see America. So New Zealand and Canada are like the small, nice neighbors and people who are more like progressive and people who are. Uh, just like the nice the niceness and the kindness around it and like the small town players and then people go to australia us for the opportunities the more aggressiveness and the more like uh, growth-based opportunities um but so i i think there's definitely a lot of like there's like very little culture shock and like people mostly speak like speak english here and um culture wise like very similar but i think some of the biggest difference i see that's really interesting to me is that I love Kiwis and how progressive and how naturally they are about their environmental conservatism and their like like healthy habits. So for example, when we first came to New Zealand, we did not know that there's no plastic bags in the entire country. So we went grocery shopping and most places you can like buy girls like plastic bags in Canada, but they just like did not have the like availability of any sort of plastic. So we carry our groceries in our hands uh, on the first day and realized always bring like bags with you because they actually don't need to sell anything. Um, there's like no plastic straws. Um, restaurants don't use plastic cutlery. And I remember staying in the Airbnb and uh, we were recycling our yogurt cups and then our host actually made us rinse them before we put it in recycling. And these are things they do not as like, oh, I want to try to be environmentally friendly or things like that. They, these are the things they do and they grow up with and they don't think this is weird. Um, every house has a compost. Uh, every house, like 
plants their own food as well. And a lot of the, what I think is that they're much, much closer to the land than Canadians are. And the other thing I really admire about Kiwis is their relationship with the indigenous and the Maori and the respect they pay. I went to tech events where they open up with uh, acknowledge the land in Maori, which again, I think doesn't happen as much in Canada. And I think the, the way that it reconciling with the indigenous population here, um, it's very, very, very respectful. It's like a really big part of the culture. Yeah, there's definitely, I agree, the, the um, uh, indigenization, like Maori culture is more viewed as as kind of an integral component of New Zealand culture versus in, in Canada, there's uh, often an uh, sort of, uh, yeah, I, there's a there's a different kind of relationship that that, that exists. Uh, and uh, although I would say some progress with regards to uh, land acknowledgements, and I think in, in Canada, there's progress being made. Certainly Venture for Canada, it's one of the things we, we've started to do, but there, to your point, is still a lot uh, of work that needs to be done uh, in, in Canada on the topic of reconciliation and uh, um, yeah, reconciling kind of past uh, past histories. The other, on the topic of environmental uh, sort of issues, I agree. One of the things that I was in New Zealand I found fascinating was the takeaway uh, cups and how you're charged like a pretty significant uh, fee for like a coffee cup uh, takeaway. And environmentalism is, is something that is much more kind of ingrained as part of uh, the everyday culture. Yeah, it's, I remember a sign I read when we were looking, watching Penguin that was humans can be prosecuted for penguins. Um, so it's like animal rights all be beyond human rights. Uh, and they just very, I think one of the things is because there's so much land and so much nature and so much conservatism. If you remember coming to New Zealand, they made you like check your hiking boots or your hiking poles and they're very, very conservative in, in the, protecting the environment. It's just people feel much closer to land. And I think that's something that I don't like when you live in a city, you don't have as much. I agree. Yeah, there's there's a the different kind of relationship with the land, and New Zealand as a whole is a, is a little bit more of a rural place than than Canada in terms of the of the sort of the population uh, distribution. So, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, you have traveled to a ton of different countries. Um, what do you think is the link between travel and, and creativity? I used to think of travel as a way to get away from the box to really open up your perspective and meet a lot of really interesting people. Um, I actually have a lot of thoughts around the difference between travel and long term traveling and what that means. And most people think about traveling, visiting countries and holidays. I think that's a very different type of travel than like living on the road, uh, which is what I've been doing for like the last year and a half. Uh, but I think travel is the way to really open up your perspective and also really appreciate what you take for granted, um, like concrete is something I think Canadians take for granted that all oh, your roads are paved. Lots of roads in New Zealand are not paved. Um, and you just realize like what, um, what you take for granted, but also what you think is normal. So I think one of the other things I realized when you're traveling is like you compare because Canada's like this, that's a normal way, but there's really no normal. It's normal uh, dependent on your circumstance and on your environment. So showing you new ways of normal. Um, so one of the things I love about New Zealand is people go surfing during lunchtime and go back to work. And that's their normal work-life balance. And like they can work and have really great jobs and have a really great family life. And that's normal, whereas that's less normal in North America. So um, I love just like being able to redefine normal and be able to see different perspective. And you see real examples of people living that way. And you're like, oh, this is actually feasible and achievable. 
I agree. There was a Canadian political scientist where he once said, those who know one country know no country. And I think it, it applies to some of the things that, that you're talking about. It's always important to have point of references, especially in understanding someone's own kind of place of, of living and, and recognizing how diverse the world is and, and diverse ways of, uh, and I think that that's one of the things that's so interesting about travel. And personally, one of the things I'm so excited for for uh, getting to travel post pandemic, it will just be to, to sort of have a little bit more vantage points after being seeing uh, my kitchen table uh, a lot for the last uh, year. So you participated also in a couple of different fellowship programs. Uh, so including the Cansbridge Fellowship, uh, Next 36, Venture for Canada, uh, most recently the On Deck Fellowship. Uh, how has uh, participation in these programs impacted your career development? And what do you recommend uh, people look out for when they're kind of considering um, participating in various fellowship programs or kind of similar professional development opportunities? Yeah, I think I'm really, really lucky to be part of amazing groups like this. And I also like was not one of those people who just wanted to apply to everything and be part of everything. I think they each served a very different purpose and at, at a very different stage. And um, I gained a lot from it because at the time, I think it like the programming was like what I was looking for during Kingsbridge. I was like to travel to Asia for summer. Um, Next 36 get, get, got me a chance to start a company and I realized I didn't want to start the company. So I went to Venture for Canada to work for a startup. Um, so I think they, they all had their reasons of why I wanted to join the program. Um, but now it's been like, I think even for VFC, it's been six years since, um, since I've done VFC and Next and Kingsbridge. And I think what's really impactful now is seeing where people are in their lives uh, after six years and the community and network you build. Um, and I think my biggest reason for a lot of joining these programs is really to build a network and build a community. And the example I actually give is CEO, which is something I'm very proudly part of since their very beginning. And when I came to New Zealand, I didn't know a single person, um, just kind of packed my bags and moved to the other side of the world. And every single person I've met in New Zealand has been through CEO because I had a CEO chapter here. And I've had people who hosted me in their homes, who cooked meals for me, who were my tour guides. Um, I got to visit people's farms and just did all these amazing things because of CEO. And we had that connection to say, hey, I'm part of CEO, you're part of CEO, a, a group of radically generous women. And that's how I was able to meet amazing people throughout my travels. So I think it's really about having that community and that similar and, and uh, that shared history or the shared identity that has been really impactful in both in my career and also even in, in my travels. I agree. Community can be, a, I think, a game changer. For our listeners, uh, can you give uh, just a little bit more uh, context on Shio and kind of what the organization does and, and why you support their work? Yeah, I am a huge advocate of CEO and was part of it, uh, their inaugural beta cohort before they were even she, uh, fully developed. And CEO is a gener is a community of radically generous women who are supporting women working on the world's to-do list. So they have these concepts of activators and ventures and activators are people who donate uh, $1,100, uh, uh, 1,000 of it goes to the venture fund and 100 goes to operations to support women who are working on amazing problems um, and solving uh, the uh, UN Sustainability Development Goals. And it's a group, and the reason I am a huge fan of it is because it's a group of uh, radically generous women who are willing to give and participate and uh, be part of the, uh, the, the community really. And uh, you're really filtering for radical generosity, which I think is a really hard thing to come by sometimes. Um, and I also just love their model of how they take investors and their, their ventures and developing their own mini ecosystem when the, our current system is so broken. So they create a new one that I absolutely love. Yeah, it's super impressive what Vicky has done uh, with Shio. 
when I was uh, Venture for Canon Shio launched at almost the exact same time, and I remember like when she was doing her first event and just getting it uh, up and going. And it's been awesome, uh, and to see the proliferation around the world. To to your point, New Zealand, uh, the United States, uh, UK, uh, really impressive uh, what's been uh, created at Shio. So you've also spent uh, several years, uh, or, or uh, I think two years, working at, at RBC. Our Royal Bank of Canada, uh, which is a huge uh, corporation, uh, uh, one of Canada's uh, largest, uh, often valued as, as uh, uh, Shopify, I think recently is the, took the crown as the most value, valuable company in Canada, but RBC is usually uh, the one. Um, how has that experience working in a large company influenced uh, your approach uh, as, as an entrepreneur? Yeah, so I went from a 20 people startup to an 80,000 people company. <laughs> that was a really big jump. And at first, I really didn't understand why there were so many forms to fill out all the time for everything I needed. And I also didn't understand why people didn't understand, like know what each other is doing. And I think the experience was actually really valuable in learning about enterprise sales and, and working with big companies and actually just how a structure like RBC works and also the financial in institution. Um, so I think that my biggest learning is just really how this how complex decision making is uh in an organization like that the hierarchies and the ways to make change but at the same time you will have massive amount of impact that you probably can't have in, in a startup because of the scale um also like very much learn about what is the right work environment for me for me and what is not and also um generally i think like working at large enterprise you learn about like complexity and system changes and also like how to get things done in, 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 a, in a behemoth like that. And I, I've always said, if I can like navigate RBC, I can navigate any company in the world. Totally. And my experience uh, working at Goldman Sachs right out of uh, university also, I can say that uh, having worked in a, a smaller venture for Canada for the last seven years uh, and uh, working with startups is that experience of working in a large corporation can be really helpful especially when you're in a small organization, you're interacting with people from large organization to put yourself in their shoes and to understand, okay, if this thing isn't moving super quickly, it's because there's a lot of internal processes and bureaucracy, partly because there has to be when you're that big of, a, of, a, of an organization, not necessarily perhaps all of it, but some of it needs to be there just for kind of uh, process. Uh, yeah, and I, I used to also think, I was like, why well, I've been dealing with, the, I was working AI, so I was dealing the, with the data and privacy office for a lot. It was like, why are there so many forms to fill out for everything we need? But then you can also think about it. Like RBC does have some of the like most important data people have. And uh, honestly, it actually has a really big consequences. So in a startup, you mess up. It's okay. Like you're only probably affecting hundreds of thousands of people, but in a bank like that, you're 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 banking a third of Canadians. So I think part of what my appreciation was as learning why the rules exist instead of always being the rebel, but like I'm gonna break all the rules because we can do things this way. But it's really understanding why the rules exist before you can decide what you can and cannot break and what they're meant to do, and having the appreciation for that. Uh, yeah, one hundred percent, and I think it's it's understanding kind of the box people can operate in and, and what, what's what's within their circle of control and what ultimately uh, isn't. If you were to give uh, startups advices, advice on um, selling into large companies, uh, what advice would you give based on your experiences? I was first going to say don't, but I, if I think 
um, a more useful advice would be, it's a really long sales cycle. And I think there's lots of like research around what how an enterprise sales means. And there's a lot of different players. So understanding the complexity, of who's the decision maker, who's your champion, who's your blocker, how approvals get made. And I think even internally, it's really hard to get approvals and to know who is who and how many signatures you need on each form. So externally, I think that's really hard if you don't have someone to navigate that for you to know what, what needs to be done. So really, really find a champion uh, who can help you navigate the system and really understand how the structure is set up and who what, what, what roles people have. Um, the other thing is just give you a lot of self. I think at a startup, people are really impatient, but like I want close sales. Um, give yourself a lot of time, like just decisions like this. And you, you, you can rush for a certain thing, but I think just because of the scale of what they're operating at, things are slower and you just have to like build that into your sales cycle. I agree. It always takes it, it always takes longer to close a sale uh, than uh, one often <laughs> appreciates. Uh, and that's my experiences with uh, often venture for Canada and, and again, getting support too. Uh, I take what you think and then add like fifty to one hundred percent amount of double. Uh, yeah, always uh, double it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. So you're now a life, a business, and a career coach. How can coaching support one's professional and personal development? Yeah, so the reason I started coaching, I have a lot of like history and like labels of what I thought a coach would be. Um, so one of the things I was looking for a coach for myself, I was probably in a place where I came to New Zealand, um, like really stuck on what to do next and really felt like I like didn't know what I want, I don't know where to go. And I was looking for a coach, but I felt that the process of looking for a coach really cumbersome. I went on what you call first dates with coaches, lots of them. And like none of them actually really worked out. Um, and then um, I did the LIBA program, which we can chat about later, but was actually meeting a coach, meeting the coach I ended up hiring through that program. And I think to me, coaching is, and, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of what coaching is. Um, I, I, there's tons of Facebook, Instagram people telling you seven ways to change your life and here's how you could be a life coach. And, um, and then part of the reason I really didn't want to call myself a coach was a lot of the labels and stereotypes surrounding coaching. But what I think a coach is is really a partner. And that helps you, guide you to figure out what you need to figure out. It, it acts as a mirror. It's someone who listens, someone who probes, someone who asks deep, meaningful questions to help you get to the next step. They don't actually tell you what the answer is. Then they don't necessarily have more experience than you, but they are your what I think of as a, a partner in, in the arena. So what I think a coach is really helpful for, um, and the reason part of the reason I got into coaching is people who are young, who are trying to figure out what they're doing, people who are in transitions of figuring out what's next, and just like, being able to like young professionals or like recent graduates really figure out what is it that you want. I think coaching is very unaffordable to people who actually need it the most, which is part of why I started my coaching practice at a very affordable way to have people uh, try out coaching. Um, and I think coaching is basically the way to help have a mirror. Um, sometimes you really need like, as, as much, I've done tons of introspection and journaling and all these exercises, but sometimes you just really need another human to listen and have that listening skill. And I've even tried recording my own voice and listening and that doesn't work very well. It's really having the, the person there whose job is to listen to what you're saying, what you're not saying, how you're saying it and what you actually mean when you say things. That's a skill in itself. And I think that's what a coach offers is that partner in the arena with you. Agreed, a, a tool for enhancing one's uh, self-awareness. Um, kind of, uh, could you clarify uh, and just give a little bit more context about the Alt MBA program that, that you referenced? Yeah. Yeah, so I did the All-MBA program uh, back in July. So All-MBA is Beth Godin's program. So for those who don't know Beth, he's a really famous author and marketer. Um, and 
I would say the Alt MBA is the personification of his like life philosophies, which are found in all his books. But this is the live example of what, of what it is. So the way it's structured, it's like it's like a four week intensive program where you do um, like two uh, two nights of three hours and a one day of eight hours uh, with different group members. And what it really it less than the MBA part, more the alt alternative part is really a mindset shift. So Thess has all these philosophies around how to ship really good work, what it means to be an artist, what it means to show up. And it gives you a chance to practice that. And it gives you a chance to really question your assumptions and your boundaries and your narrative and have a group of people, very, very peer-based. It's not a traditional school-based, uh, who are there enrolled, who want to help you succeed and you want to help succeed. Um, and you get very valuable feedback from it. So I think that one of the most important things I got from the program was the quality of feedback that I normally don't get because your job is to like, you get, you learn and you, your job is to give feedback to your peers. Um, what the program meant for me was really actually unlocking my stuckness. So I, I no longer felt stuck after the program. It gave me some uh, motivation and direction to move forward um, and some tools to think about how to move forward. So that was probably one of the turning points last year in my journey of, of sabbatical is really doing all MBA and becoming unstuck. You're a fantastic lifelong learner, Susie. And I think that's testament to all the different fellowship and learning programs you've done. Like, And just also from knowing you, you're somebody who's constantly seeking out new learning opportunities to kind of learn new skills, new mindsets. What advice do you have to, for people on how to cultivate that uh, outlook of, of and practice of lifelong learning? I think it's just curiosity. I I don't call myself a, a lifelong learner. One of the things I like decided and understood during all MBA was one of my gifts is my natural curiosity. Um, and this is part of why I love coaching is because I just got to get to ask questions. And I'm someone who is a question asker um, initially, like by nature, I ask a lot of questions, probably more than people wanted to hear. And that's how I learn. I learn by asking a lot of questions. And that's how I think about like different situations. The way I like think through my head is by also by asking myself a lot of questions. So I'm generally just someone who has a lot of questions. I think my curiosity is what guides me um, into like different learning opportunities, you can call them. But basically, I I'm just a natural questioner. Practice of curiosity is probably one of the most important things in life. And it's where so many uh, different ideas come from. It's like the famous Steve Jobs uh, definition of creativity. It's the ability to connect dots that other people don't, don't see. Uh, and you know he speaks in this famous Stanford uh, commencement address about how taking a calligraphy course uh, in college completely opened up his eyes. I think it's the same. You never know sometimes where kind of random curiosity on a specific subject can end up um, benefiting, particularly if somebody has a really uh, omnivorous consumption of knowledge. Uh, they can connect the dots in, in sometimes super kind of uh, interesting ways. Um, shifting gears back to the uh, coach uh, kind of conversation is, what are some tips or advice that you have on, on uh, for people who might be looking to become coaches or to develop a coaching practice on how to become a really effective uh, coach and kind of learn the, the trade? So definitely still a work in progress myself. Um, and I think that one of the things that was stopping me from becoming a coach was like, oh, you don't have a coaching certificate. You don't have all these like frameworks and all these things. Um, but I think at the end of the day, what a coach really needs is ability to listen and like, and, like truly listen and understand how to listen, hold space for people and like ask really good questions. I don't know how you learn those things specifically, but unless with that intention of like really learning, wanting to hold space and listening to people and 
again, being guided by curiosity. There's tons of frameworks I think you can use. Um, there's does, but this is the same thing I think about product management and which is like my past career is that there's tons of frameworks in a product as well. But at the end of the day, you need to, you have the tools, you need to learn how to do the job. And then a lot of the job is like making trade-offs, like balancing stakeholders. Like you can have frameworks for that, but you can't depend on your frameworks to do the job. So that's the same thing I think about coaching. There's definitely frameworks on how you can unblock your, your challenges. There's frameworks on how you can uh, reframe your narratives. But the, at the end of the day, like the fundamentals is like listening and asking questions and really holding space and deeply listening, which I think it's not a skill that most people know or learn. And um, to have the intention, and I think part of it is just to have the intention of how to listen better um, for what people are saying. And I do that just, just generally by practicing with people and listening about their stories. I think even traveling, I get to share my story a lot. I get to hear other people's story and just really learning how to listen and asking questions. That's probably guided by my curiosity, which is to say, I'm probably not the most experienced coach or the most like professional coach. But I think what I hold for my clients is this ability to have hold space and be guided by the, my curiosity and actually caring about them as people. Um, and that's basically how I've been learning how to coach is by just doing it and like listening and asking questions. Yeah, I, you know, I, I agree. I think it's the, the ability to do active listening, the ability to really listen deeply and understand what somebody's saying, I think is one of the most important skills. I actually wish in school that people were like taught <laughs> like active listening, I think it would be a great course just to, to literally teach people on, on, on uh, how to, uh, to do that. So uh, yeah, I think it's a great advice. And the other point too, is that I think it's that concept of a coach. It's not telling someone what to do, it's, it, but, but it, it's asking questions. It's using the Socratic method, why, why, why? Uh, I uh, was recently reading the Dale Carnegie, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People kind of classic book. And that's what he says is, you, people, no one likes to take orders, right? Like people like to come to the, the solution um, themselves. And I think a great coach uh, very rarely says what to do, but more asks really good questions and, 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 and keeps on asking why. Yes, and that's one of the first things. Uh, so actually, why is one of the questions you're not supposed to ask as a coach in like their profession in how they teach you about coaching? Because it will trigger people's defensiveness. Um, so you actually like one of the like things you do at least you learn about coaching is like, oh, how do you reframe your why questions about what about um, and things like that? Because what triggers more uh, gen generating options versus why triggers mm. defensiveness? Um, but so these are things you can learn by coaching, but I actually don't think those are the most important things. I do think one of the things I do in a lot of my sessions is set expectations that I don't have the answers. I can share some experiences that's helpful, but I'm here to help you figure it out for yourself and give you the tools. And I think that's one of the things people don't necessarily understand about coaching and it's being realistic about what expectations you can have from it. If you could go back in time uh, and ask some questions to your 22 year old self, what, what would the, be the uh, questions that you would ask? Oh, did not prepare for this question. <laughs> um, uh, one of the things I think I've always asked myself is like, like, like the hardest question to ask is like, what do you want? But I think less about what you want is like, what is important? Um, and what do you need more than one? I think I want a lot of things. Um, I th and I think that's what ambitious people want a lot of things. But I think what a question that would be more helpful what have been, what is it that you actually need and what makes you like happy? I think I recently figured out like an equation to joy in my life. And that was like a 
not a really hard process, but it's really the difference asking what I want versus what I need. And when I, if I think I focus a lot on the want as a young, as someone who's young, because you have all of these options, you could do so many things and the world is your oyster. Um, that sometimes you forget what are some fundamental human needs like connection and relationships and health, mental well-being and things like that. Um, yeah, so I think that's one of the questions, like, what, what, what do I need versus what do I want? And two, I think, is, like, what is really important to you versus what I think, like, is important. I think it's just being very honest about um, if I say I value something, why do I value it um, versus thinking it is? Um, but, yeah, I know these are not really good answers because I haven't really thought about this. Um, but I think generally, like, one thing I recently learned is just differentiating what you want and accepting kind of where you are in your life versus uh what you need and where you are in your life versus like everything you want in your life um i actually think that that's that's a great like um way to think about it i think especially in the pandemic it's made me like once things get more, more normal in canada just the little everyday things that i neglected and i think a lot of people have that experience of you know the joy of going to a coffee shop or just seeing a friend in person or you know all these things and that sometimes we always want so many we you know our appetite is constantly growing that it's to just be happy with the little things. Uh, and, and sometimes, we, you know, there's a quote that a, um, a healthy man wants 10,000 things and a, uh, a sick man wants one <laughs> uh, uh, thing, which is to, to feel better. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's, it's sometimes when someone's young and healthy and all these things, it's wanting everything uh, with the recognition that, um, yeah, I'll focus on, on really what you need in life. Uh, and, uh, and I think someone will be, uh, be happier. Yeah, and I just think that it's not about, and I used to have this problem, like, oh, I shouldn't want things. I shouldn't, like, I feel bad about it. But then there's all this, like, advice, but like, you can have everything you want. And, and like, I just had the struggle between ambition and, like, uh, and gratitude and being, like, happy with what I have. I think where I am in life now is that I think you should, still, you should always be grateful for what you have, but just because you're grateful doesn't mean you, you can't want more. Um, and I think it's, like, completely honest meant to want more, but really, like, picking what you want I think trade-offs I think I used to be someone who wants absolutely everything like in, in life and like not like acknowledging trade-offs that may actually exist um now I think I'm just more cautious and more deliberate about what the trade-offs are and be honest with that with that and uh like picking what I want while still being grateful uh completely so my final question uh, before we wrap things up is what are three books that you recommend uh that our listeners check out and why do you recommend them the first one that came to mind was Atomic Habits, but I think a lot of people will say that one. It's like a really good book around like just building habits and how to think about habits versus goals. And it's just aligned with my whole thinking of, I don't believe in goals, I believe in habits and routines. Um, the next one I would say it's like, a, I was I, I personally like Michelle Obama's like becoming more, but I recently read uh, Barack's book uh, over Christmas and listened to his story and actually inspired my next career change, um, which is uh, like, which is basically taking uh, one of the things I really liked about his book and the way he talks about it is like the way he, the reason he went into politics was to affect change that was too big to affect as an individual. Um, so I, my example is that if you're sick, if you're sick, I can bring you chicken soup, but I can't give you free healthcare. Um, and that's there's only a certain amount of people and what you need to do to be able to influence that level of change. Um, and because of that, of that, the way I think about it, 
in, in the entrepreneurship world. I, I, I as one entrepreneur or as a person, I can't influence a, a, a whole systematic level change. So I want to play at the ecosystem level. So I can, actually where I'm thinking about going next is in the venture capital and ecosystem building world, because I think that is my way to support businesses in a portfolio of approaches that are changing the world. Um, so Barack went to politics, and I, I think I want to get into the entrepreneurial ecosystem as my playing ground to make a difference, to be able to influence some of these systematic changes. Um, and then those, I, I don't have a third book that I absolutely love. Um, before it used to be Eat, Pray, Love, because I kind of went on that journey. But now that I've been on that journey, I actually don't recommend that journey for a lot of people. Um, so I'll, I'll just leave at these two for now. I love uh, uh, Barack Obama's most recent book too, as, as well. It, it's a fantastic uh, biography. Excited for his part two. Uh, he, he goes into a huge amount of uh, detail, but just tons of interesting. Yeah, on some things, it's very detailed uh, on certain policy maneuvers. And uh, but overall, I think a, a great, really great book. And I also uh, like uh, Atomic Habits. So thanks so much for coming on. We've discussed a ton of great uh, and really interesting topics today. Everything from the link between kind of travel and creativity uh, to the importance of community uh, to enterprise sales uh, to coaching. Uh, a pretty jam-packed uh, conversation. Uh, Susie, it's been a pleasure getting to know you over the last uh, six years. I remember from uh, our conversation and Aroma uh, Coffee in Toronto uh, 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 over six years ago uh, to uh, today. Uh, it's been a true pleasure uh, getting to know you and, and you're really uh, one of the most curious and I think uh, really a, like a lifelong learner of, of anyone I know. So thanks for sharing your insights on the podcast. It's been great to have you on the show. That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our social and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at Venture4Canada, that is Venture, the number four, Canada, or email us at podcast at Venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Sturt, and until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful. A new wave of entrepreneurship is produced by Winita Lee Garcia and Latifa Farah. Editing and mixing also done by Latifa Farah. Erica Ormanston is our editorial assistant. Mark Wallach and Premium Beat own the copyright and publishing rights related to the song used in this podcast. The comments and opinions, recommendations, or suggestions expressed on the podcast by the guests are not liable to Venture for Canada and belong solely to each individual. Any information provided stated by our guests and our host is independent of Venture for Canada. A new wave of entrepreneurship is a Venture for Canada brand and all content is owned by Venture for Canada. If you'd like to use our content, please reach out to us at podcast at venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca.